0: hello and welcome to yet another episode of constructing success a sales lifestyle performance hack in anything further educational podcast where it's my job to tease out ask questions and deconstruct people that i deem as top performers in whatever industry they're in today my guest is extremely important to the sales world this is going to be the longest introduction that I have ever done. But who I have asked to join me is Dave Curlin. And Dave is a, an author and a blogger. He's provided unique insights into the sales world with his book, Mindless Selling. He's also the creator and writer of the popular blog, Understanding the Salesforce. He also is a best-selling author, and I can't go without mentioning his book, Baseline Selling, How to Become a Sales Superstar by Using What You Already Know About the Game of Baseball. This book influenced me more than any other sales book out there, and it has significantly shaped the sales strategies of countless professionals. He is the creator of Star, which is his proprietary recruiting system, Process that is tailored to hire the best salespeople. He was a radio show host and it was he was the voice behind Meet the Sales Experts. He is a contributor to publications that include Top Sales Magazine, Thesalesforce.com, um, Alistair Payne, Evan and many more. He is a collaborative author and he has collaborated with the likes of Deepak Chopra and Jack Canfield. He also co-authored Stepping Stones and has shared his insights in the death of 20th uh, 20th century selling. Dave is an entrepreneur, and at the helm of his ventures, he founded the Objective Management Group, which is known to some as OMG, which quickly rose in prominence as the industry leader in sales assessments and evaluations. Additionally, he's the CEO of Curlin Associates, which is how I've come to know Dave, which is we are an international sales consulting firm that is focused on Salesforce development. Then we go into Dave being a speaker that is known for captivating audience, audiences, and he has been a top-rated speaker At prestigious events such as Inc. Magazine's conference on growing the company and the sales and marketing management conference, um, among many others. He has awards and recognition such as being in the sales and marketing hall of fame, which I didn't even know existed. Um, When we talk about the objective management group, it has repeatedly won awards for being a top assessment tool and i just want to touch a little bit more on his hall of fame induction which took place in 2012 so dave i told you that was going to be a long intro i'm hoping that was the longest one you've ever had welcome to the show
1: uh, you you mentioned more stuff than i than i can even remember i've forgotten most of those things well
0: when when you hear them <laughs> it's
1: a, that. impressive thank you for that Mattering long, uh, semi-impressive introduction.
0: I think it's incredibly impressive. And so listing those significant milestones, if we can go back to whether it's the 18, 19, or 20-year-old Dave, can you let the listeners know how you ended up in the sales world?
1: I can Um, It's not a short story. Good. Um, It's more of an essay. Um, I was just at the point where I realized college wasn't for me, and I was looking for a job, and I wasn't qualified to do anything else. So there was a job for... Uh, salespeople earning four seventy nine an hour. Now that might not seem like much, but the minimum wage back in nineteen seventy three was a dollar and seventy five cents. So four seventy nine was also triple. It sounds pretty good. Um, so I applied for it. It was just they were recruiting college kids and similar age kids to sell coat knives, and almost every college kid familiar with that um almost everybody gets close to being recruited for that and i sat through the presentation and then they asked you to write down uh, uh whether you were interested in why and you know i was an acute introvert and i was afraid of people and uh, so that was a no brainer for me i said no uh because i'm horrible with people i don't like people i'm afraid of people i don't talk to people people don't talk to me so i see i have a have a nice life and as I walked out the door, um, it it wasn't the very first time something like this has happened, but it was one of the first times where I heard the voice in my head. And that voice has intervened at several crucial moments in my life to get me off of the wrong path and onto the right path. Um, I I don't know whether it was... God speaking directly to me or a spirit guide or an imaginary friend that I have up there. But the voice basically grabbed me by the collar and turned me around and walked me back into the room and forced me to apologize and correct my interview answer and and say yes. And so I took a job in sales with a conscious effort to use it uh, to become better talking to people. That was at at that point, that was the only goal. And, uh, I lasted two years, 11 months and three weeks longer than everybody else did. Everybody else usually quit within a week. I lasted almost three years. So I actually learned to sell and got very good at it. And, uh, it was great preparation for both a career in sales and then a career in sales development. Uh, because I was doing crazy shit that, that people never stuck around long enough to have to do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what, um what is, so I'm familiar with cutco knives. So I'm not sure if I had told you this story, but my dad, that was his first sales job. And I can't say that it was on his first day, but I do think that he was there a span of a week, something like that. And in his I think it was one of his first demos, like door-to-door demos. He handed the knife. Um, he handed the knife to a woman, and she split all his tendons, like cut, cut out of his hand, and, and That's that, the that first was it. Part I was
1: referring to. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in some pretty scary. I mean you'd think if you're going to sell the most expensive knife or one of the most expensive knives on the planet Mm -hmm. that you'd be calling on well-to-do people that had plenty of money and could spend what at that time was like 150 bucks on a set of knives today. That's like 600 bucks. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the target audience. The target audience was a girl who didn't go to college, who, got a job right out of high school and was putting money aside to get married. Mm-hmm. And, um, we found most of those girls in neighborhoods with triple deckers, mm-hmm. you know, some were in single family homes, but the rule was pretty crappy neighborhoods and, uh, scary as hell.
0: So, so you said you're doing crazy shit and you said you had some scary stories. So wh- which one
1: do you want to go with first? let's do the crazy shit first. Um, I can give you two craziest shit stories. (laughs) Um, one, one of the circa 1970s, uh, demo things that we did was we wanted to demonstrate, uh, how steak would be like cutting shoe leather Mm -hmm. if you had a dull knife. So we'd ask them to get one of their knives and we'd hold up a piece of thin leather like this and have them try to cut it with their knives and it would never go through mm-hmm. and then we gave them one of our incredibly sharp knives and held the same piece of leather and had them just pressed down and it would just it would literally go through like it was butter well one girl <laughs> wasn't paying attention to the knife or the leather and she slipped my finger open
0: Oh, so you you and my dad share the same experience, a little different application that's of how, it.
1: That's how um, his tendons got
0: slit? No, he incorrectly handed it to them. Like he handed it with, to them with them having the handle, and she just when she pulled it, just slit slit every tendon in his fingers.
1: Okay, there was another time where I wasn't paying attention. There was a demo where we're um, we're dicing bread as if we were. Doing uh, making French fries out of potato, mm-hmm. and it's dice, 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 and just keep feeding the bread. But I wasn't looking where I was supposed to be looking, mm-hmm. and I diced the top of my finger off in their home. Yeah, immediate, in her home,
0: in her home, immediate emergency room.
1: Um, I asked for a bandage, <laughs> and she couldn't find one. She she ended up uh, with Paper towel and scotch tape, so that that was the first aid applied on scene yeah, and then I went for stitches
0: that, that's what held you over until then um so yeah. so w- what would be
1: so well, I didn't get to the good ones yet
0: okay no keep it keep it coming
1: <laughs> I was uh selling to one girl, and all of a sudden there was pounding on her door, and she's like, Oh shit, my boyfriend's here." I'm like, I'll invite him in. Oh no, you don't understand. He's gonna kill you. Well, why would he do that? Um, Cause he's jealous. She's like, quick, hide in my bedroom. I'm like, I don't think that's the place where I ought to go. No, that's the only other room in the house. Quick, hide in my bedroom. So I'm in the bedroom. He's out there with my knives and he's trying to pound the bedroom door down to get at me with my knives. And then there's a, another time I, I called on a husband and wife with a little baby. And uh, in the middle of it, he pulled out a gun. And he his his daughter sitting in the high chair was probably a year and a half old. And he pointed it at her and pulled the trigger. Oh, and shit. it was nothing in the gun, but I, I was already convinced that he was a fucking nut job. <laughs> and i hightailed out of there and left my knives behind
0: yeah uh, i would do the same so it was dangerous that that's a very dangerous job and was did it seem like you were always seeking out or you were instructed to go into lower income neighborhoods or crazier people well, neighborhoods I,
1: I get- Prove that their theory was correct. My first three weeks in the business, I made more sales than anybody had ever made. I made like 95 sales in three weeks. And it was all my parents' friends buying a knife Mm -hmm. for 10 Mm bucks because they felt bad for me. They had plenty of money. I grew up, you know, in a upper middle class family. We pretty much had what we wanted. And, uh, Calling on their friends yielded $110 sales. And it wasn't until I started calling on the the target audience, the single girls, that I started selling $100, $150 sets of knives and more. So, yeah, that was the right thing to do. But it was just crazy.
0: Crazy (laughs) and and a scary environment to be selling in. But there was something (laughs) to it. Either, And we'll uncover this, but it either either it was you or it was a combination of you and that experience, but that propelled you and your trajectory into being a sales guru. So my my question would be, if you're looking back on it, what was it, what was it about you that was not only that you outlasted everybody, but what were you doing differently that allowed you to make these sales?
1: Great question. So local college kids were expected to start with friends and family Mm -hmm. and when they ran out of friends and family they were pretty much done because nobody wanted to make cold calls i ran out of friends and family but remembered why i took the job in the first place it was to put myself out there to put myself in front of people to have some success uh, selling and uh so the other pieces um, when i make a commitment i stick to my commitment i was not a quitter um so onward and upward uh, and when i made that transition from friends and family to strangers it wasn't easy um, and and i've told this story before i would spend eight hours all day banging on doors trying to schedule the three meetings I needed to have or the three demos I needed to have for that night and I freaking hated it that you know that was as cold calling as you could get and uh it was miserable especially in the middle of the winter it was freaking cold it was demoralizing it was frustrating it was discouraging it was demoral, the the, um, demotivating. It, there was nothing about it that was good. Even when you booked the three meetings for that night, it was still awful. Uh, so at some point early on, I decided that if I had to have three meetings each night and I had the cold call to get them, or at least at the beginning, I had to cold call to get them, then I was just going to get so good at making those cold calls that it would only take me an hour. That that was what I challenged myself to do. And it took me about a month of really working at me, my delivery, uh, my presence, my messaging, my smile, um, my resilience, my uh, developing some rejection proof in me, uh, just whatever it freaking took to not have to do that miserable, Shit for more than an hour a day. And uh so that's how I lasted three years. That and referrals and introductions.
0: Referrals and introductions. So so focusing on, on the cold call part, because I I know for the listener, this is gonna be one of the biggest topics that they would hope to hear more about. What what change or not what changed, but what if you were to think of the the average cut-co knife salesperson, which the average cut-co knife salesperson didn't make it. If you were to think about their approach at the door in their introduction versus yours, what was it that made someone say, Yes, come back? We'd like to see, or yes,
1: we're interested in a demo. I think the biggest thing was that I need to lower their defenses so that they would listen to my first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And I I needed to be friendly enough so that I was non-threatening to them, you know, because people were scared there was somebody that they didn't know at their door. And as soon as they figured out it was a salesperson selling something, their, their natural tendency was to say, you know, not interested, don't need it. We're all set. Mm -hmm. So over that month, I had to figure out how to diffuse both of those problems.
0: And, naturally i've got to ask how would you and and we we talk about this a lot so to to lower someone's resistance or manage resistance or diffuse them that is the difference the ability to manage resistance is the ability to control your prospect or suspects um, willingness to listen to you or to hear more or to give you another 30 seconds So what would a diffusing opening statement look like when you're knocking on their door in the freezing cold in Massachusetts?
1: Well, uh, if you watch some movies with some door-to-door salespeople, you'd see that their method, their tactic, was when the the storm door opened to stick their leg in it. They couldn't shut the door on them. And I found that if I took a step backwards that was helpful uh another thing was that everybody else w- just wanted to recite their script mm-hmm. and i thought it was more important to smile and just struggle a little bit make to make myself non-threatening so by taking a step back and smiling and struggling a little bit at the outcome i, I, I looked 12 too that didn't hurt <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. You don't know that. I'm I so <laughs> freaking young. Uh, so that that took care of the threatening part of it, and then I had to um, get their attention and uh, get them engaged. And so you, I asked for help. Okay. You asked them. For I asked help. them to help. Me. Them. Yeah. My my first lines were, "I hope you can help me," and that wasn't very threatening to anybody.
0: And what would they say? How
1: can I help you? Are you lost? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but more likely, they'd say, what do you want? But I had a conversation started. Mm-hmm. They talked. Yeah. And I learned early on that if I could get them to talk, I could have a conversation with them. Okay. And I also understood they were, probably weren't my target audience. Um, back then, early 1970s, the person that answered the door was usually a housewife mm-hmm. um, they weren't working back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe they had kids at home. Maybe they didn't. Uh, maybe they were in school, but it was usually a housewife. And I, I basically engaged with them in a way that I wasn't trying to sell them anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cutco Knives back then was owned by Alcoa Aluminum Company of America. And back then, they made um, aluminum foil that was a competitor to Reynolds Wrap. Uh, And everybody knew Alcoa Wrap. You know, it was advertised on TV all the time. It was in the supermarket. And so I dropped that name because I thought that name was pretty uh, non-threatening. You know, I might say I I was with a division of Alcoa. You know the alcoa wrap. I sometimes I even brought a freaking roll of alcoa wrap with me in case I needed. That's a it. good idea you know, for credibility. And they'd worry that I was selling aluminum siding, which I don't think the company sold. But that, that's fine. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. As as a matter of fact, I'm not even selling anything to you. Um, my my target audience is a single, working girl who might be one to five years out of high school i was just wondering if you could point to which houses i might find them okay and once in a while uh one of them asked what we were selling and i said the best knives in the world it was it was not anything that i would teach to anybody today as a matter of fact You know, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we work with B2B companies, not B2C companies. We've we've done almost virtually no work with B2C companies, even though I had my earliest experiences in B2C. And I don't care to go back and re-experience anything like that ever again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I was just looking for them to point that house Mm -hmm. over there and a first name, Mary. So that I could go to that house, ask for Mary, and mention that the lady across the street thought that this would be a good place for me to go.
0: And was that when you would do that when you would be walking away? Did you notice that the person that pointed you that way that would ask more questions about, well, you know, you've got these great knives. Can well, you sometimes show them to they were me? interested.
1: Yeah. We could use some good knives. Okay. And that, that was a bonus and that, that would happen maybe one out of 10 times. Oh, so it wasn't huge. No, but it was a result of not selling them anything. Right.
0: Right. And probably peaking their interest of, I can't believe you didn't even try to sell what, why not me? (laughs) Why can't, why wouldn't I want that?
1: Yeah. So that was part of learning to get good at it. Um, you know, we talked about being non-threatening and diffusing the fear and, getting a conversation started but I also said referrals and introductions mm-hmm. so I, I literally got referrals from neighbors mm-hmm. and then the introductions came from the girls that I sold the knives to basically you know give, give me the names of all your friends that I'm going to go sell these knives to and call them and tell them I'm coming would you say that
0: was the biggest piece to your success was the referrals and introductions the introductions. the introductions
1: Because once I figured out that all I really had to do was get referrals from the people whose doors I was banging on, Mm -hmm. that's why I was able to do that in an hour. I, I was able to stop wasting my time. If the first lady who talked to me pointed to five houses on the street, I just had to go to those five houses and get my meetings scheduled. Right, And then once I sold those girls their sets of knives... And they turned me on to all of their friends, and then it was just, it was easy as pie.
0: Okay, so yeah, so that makes a ton of sense, and also just targeting, wasting you didn't waste any time on that no, street banging on girls
1: and introductions. But it started with figuring out cold calls, and just throwing myself out there as as bad as it was.
0: What what made you leave Coco? Being that it was that you were having success there,
1: I was too old. Uh, 20 at that point.
0: <laughs> you had, you had, uh, you'd become a dinosaur in the short lived career there.
1: Yeah. I was, I was at that point, a manager had my own office. I had, I was doing my own recruiting. I had, uh, younger college students and working kids in their teens working for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I think I just realized that was enough. Um, there were two things. One. Uh, I realized that I was better than everybody else at recruiting people and getting them to stick around longer than a week. I, mean, I didn't have the one week and out because I didn't expect that because I didn't experience that. Mm-hmm. So I worked hard on how to get them past a week, whereas all the other managers figured that's OK. That's how it's supposed to work. It's baked in you know, a week and then go recruit 10 more. Um I I thought I could get more. So after I was able to uh, get people over a week, and they began to sell the strangers and make money for themselves, um, it became obvious that I had the ability to get people to respond to me, that people were learning from me, that I was actually training and coaching people. I didn't know how I was doing it. I I was doing nothing consciously and on purpose. I was just following my instincts. So at as early as 20, I knew that I wanted to be in this business, in the sales development business. Probably didn't have those two words in my vocabulary, sales development. Um, Probably wasn't thinking sales training, but I was probably the words in my mind were at that point, something along the lines of marketing consulting, Mm -hmm. just because I didn't know any better. I didn't know what I was doing and i also knew that i was at least 10 years too early you know cuz i still looked 12 and i had no real world experience and i knew selling knives to girls wasn't the credibility that i needed to have um and i had always wanted to be in the music business so in between i i started a music business and uh it was retail but I took what I had already learned from my three years at Cutco and uh, added a piece to the retail. So I also went and called on churches and nightclubs, sometimes right across the street from each other, and public and private school systems, and uh, tried to develop uh, a direct sales music revenue stream. Uh, by servicing and selling to school systems and by servicing and selling sound systems to churches and nightclubs and uh, doing band instrument repair and uh, selling band instruments and stringed instruments to the schools and uh, put big teaching facilities in my retail store so that we had a ton of families coming in that were primed to buy a musical instrument that their kid could learn on. Uh, and those kids ended up o- over a few years graduating to more expensive instruments and some of them professional instruments. So it was really a, a, a grassroots sales effort to build a retail business, which you don't usually see.
0: Was that unique at the time to, to offer yeah. all those things?
1: Yeah, there, there were a few other music businesses in the city, um, you know, one catered to professionals, which meant they kept they carried only the top brands and discounted them fifty percent to the professional musicians, so that they made no money on the instruments.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Another one sold only band instruments and stringed instruments, and uh, hadn't ventured into uh, guitars and drum sets and sound systems and and uh, electronic keyboards, and uh, so. I kind of figured out what was going on relative to the competition and tried to do everything different. Uh, and we carved out a niche and uh, I, I built a pretty good one location retail business that was generating over a million dollars a year, which was pretty huge that is. in that in single location music business at the time. And uh, got my chops on non B2C selling. hmm. And uh, that that kind of primed me for the 38 years of B2B training and coaching and development and sales management training and coaching and sales leadership training and coaching uh, that we do at Curlin these days.
0: What uh, when you before I jump to Curlin um, with the
1: with the store. I'm sorry, I got ahead of you. Yeah, no,
0: no, 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 This This is a good transition. I'm curious, were you the only, were you doing the outside sales? Was it you or were you training people under you?
1: That was me.
0: Okay, so you were generating, what would you say was the the split from um, outbound business that you generated uh, versus walk-in order taking?
1: Great question. I don't know and I don't remember, but if I had to guess, it was probably 50-50 mm-hmm. first three years. And then over time, as the the guitar and the drum and the sound systems and the electronic keyboards and all of that stuff grew and the families coming in spent more money, it was probably 80-20 retail to direct.
0: That's great, though, because the 80-20, building off the 50 50- uh, the 50-50. I'm sure the 80-20 was significant because that would have made you yeah. the name in town, the trusted. That's where we're taking our kids for lessons. That's where we're going for band stuff. Schools are going here. Um, so I, I didn't realize that it got that big. So thank you for sharing that with me. And now I have to ask, as it was going so well, what made you
1: change? I hated it. Okay. <laughs> was it the people? It was, it was retail, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you know, unless you had a big eight location furniture store mm-hmm. uh, or a 12 location car dealership business, it was still retail mm-hmm. and there wasn't much money to be made in retail. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when I was generating a million dollars in sales, I was probably only bringing home $40,000. Oh, was just, wow. okay. Was no money to be made, yeah. but I was working, you know, all the hours of the week seven days a week. Um, It was 12 hours a day, except on Sundays, which was only three hours a day. And you're working for the vendors. You're working for the teachers who were teaching there. You're working for the employees, working for the customers. Um, But not much was for me. So while I loved it the first six or seven years, and I was getting a lot of fulfillment and I was building something pretty cool and having fun, I came to resent it. Mm -hmm. And um, I I still had that thing in the back of my mind that I thought I should be in this current business. And after about 10 years in, I couldn't stand it anymore and made the switch. And when you made the switch
0: which is a, it's a major leap of faith because this is going from an established business to um, I'm assuming when you made the jump, this was a solo venture, correct? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. What was your, um, you can walk me through the steps, but what did the first six months or first year look like? How how did you get going?
1: It was, what's the word? Terrifying. (laughs) Because Because I went from something that I knew really well, that I was comfortable and confident with, Mm -hmm. and uh, I knew what to expect to something that I had no real path for. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it consulting? Was it training? Was it coaching? Was it services? Was it products? Um, Was it priced right? Um, I, I didn't look 12 anymore. Now I looked 20. (laughs) and I when I when I showed up um I'm I'm pretty sure the first impression was what could this kid teach me (laughs) and and I was doing all the selling back then and again I started with cold calling and uh I, I cold called for about three months and then I had enough clients that I could start building the business by word of mouth and introductions oh but uh, yeah, it was terrifying. You know, it was, it was all B2B. And so I was finding my way in B2B because uh, every industry, every business, every sales team was different mm-hmm. from anything I experienced to that point. It wasn't like I was focusing on one industry and knew everything. Everything it was probably like when you started with Curlin in uh, 2022. Mm-hmm and you you knew the building materials industry but all your opportunities were not in building materials and you had to quickly figure out what they did and who they did it to and how they made money and what the problems were with the sales team and be able to recommend and provide uh solution around evaluations assessments training coaching uh, sales process enablement and anything else that that might have fit at that time it it was terrifying yes and and i was broke when i started because for me it was more important to get out of the music business and start this business uh than wait around for somebody to give me a bunch of money i mean i don't i don't know if anyone was going to give me a bunch of money. So I just made a clean break, walked away, started broke, and I didn't have an option to fail. Mm -hmm. I had to succeed. And I think that helped a lot that there was no option for failure.
0: I would, I would completely agree there because without any, without any runway, without any backup plan in I can I can speak to this. I had runway coming into it, but being in a situation where it is um, full commission and you only get paid on what you do, um, I I see why I see why salespeople want a salary because they don't want to ever be uncomfortable. And I, I wish that I had been in a situation like this when I was younger, the, uh, there, you know, this isn't for everybody, but the discomfort that comes with not. You were a lot older than
1: me, right? Uh, I was 30. I started.
0: I was 33. So three years older, but I know the, I know the feeling that you're talking about still feeling, and and we had this, this conversation do I still seem young to be on the consulting side? Which now well, I you can I don't. grow a beard. Well, I, yeah. I couldn't even grow.
1: I couldn't even grow a beard.
0: Yeah, this is true. You probably looked younger.
1: So, so yeah. and you're six foot three. I'm tiny. I just look like a little kid, and I didn't know how to dress. I, I was so clueless. You know, back then we did wear jackets and ties and button down shirts to every meeting. And oh, I had no fashion sense. I, I looked like three different people gave me three different uh, parts of of the outfit to wear, <laughs> and nobody consulted each other. I was just a disheveled, wrinkled mess. But uh, I was still getting business. It it was uh, it was what worked.
0: So that how were you able to get business? What was your introduction? And and this is also it's a this will shine light on the difficulty in sales consulting is to give the listeners a little bit of context. And this is my experience, but when you go into offer services, you're talking to a CEO, a president, a founder of a company, or at least that's where you'd hope you'd be. And you have to quickly illuminate that maybe the vp of sales that they're paying a lot of money and their director that they're paying a lot of money or directors and their sales managers that are all supposed to be the sales leaders of their company that they don't know as much as you and when they don't know as much as you you have to you have to position yourself in a way that the ceo thinks I'm willing to pay this random person that I never expected to call me or to knock on my door money to do a job that I'm paying 10 people right now to do. But he struck a chord in my head that's now making me think maybe they're not as effective as they could be. So, what did that look
1: like back then? Uh, What I knew how to do back then. And, um, you know, we've been teaching it for 38 years. And so a lot more people know how to do it today than back in the mid 80s. But I was already really good at a consultative approach. So I could ask a ton of questions. I could listen really acutely to what was being said. I had very uh, active listening skills. And I could get them telling me about stuff that was problematic for them. So it, it looked like a, a consultative approach with thorough qualifying and me providing a solution that made sense to them. Um, I think, what did they have to lose?
0: I, I would say, not, not necessarily what do they have to lose, but it's it's the ability to so quickly build trust or ask a question in a way that that gets them to light up. And, and I'm speaking from experience. Uh, there was, before I came to work with you, I was familiar with baseline selling and I was familiar with the methodology and I was in a leadership position where I, I think it was a blog article, whatever it was. I think it was a, um, it was some blog article that I saw that reminded me about you. And I thought to myself, there are aspects that I'm unable to teach my sales team that I think they would highly benefit from doing this. But then I found myself in a position being scared to ask the owner of the company for help because it discredited my abilities. And I was, I was fearful that they would say, you should be able to do this. That's what we pay you for.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, I I found out pretty quickly. I'm a slow learner. So it it might have taken a couple of years to realize that uh, sales managers and sales VPs, uh, sales leaders uh, are threatened by the idea of someone from the outside coming in to train their salespeople or coach their salespeople or evaluate their salespeople or give them advice or be a sounding board or whatever it may be mm-hmm. because they believed, as you did, that that was their job. So you, know, you didn't have to tell me 173 times. Uh, at some point I realized I just needed to stop calling on those people. Uh, cause my, my success from calling on CEOs and presidents and owners was significantly higher than the little bit of success I had calling on sales managers and, and sales leaders and but i think there was a little bit of this this young little kid that's all disheveled and doesn't know how to dress is, is pretty good at this and if if he can have success imagine what he could tell my awesome salespeople that might help mm-hmm. I, I think early on there was a little of that
0: what uh so when when you started to see successes and <clears throat> I know that so for the listener, you've consulted for many different industries when how many years was it in, and what was the industry or company, and you can you know change names to protect protect identity but when was it that you really felt like I've got a hold of this and uh, people need me to help them? Like, like when was the moment where you felt established?
1: Great question, Derek. Um, I think it was somewhere between 1989 and 1993. So that would have been somewhere four to seven years in where I was starting to feel pretty cocky mm-hmm. that I could help any company with any problem and any challenge uh, fix the sales organization problem. And I, I think the thing that I had gotten extremely good at and perhaps better than anybody at at the time uh, was diagnostics. I, I could quickly figure out what the problem was. And that's what led to the founding of Objective Management Group. My ability to do sales diagnostics, um, whether it was diagnosing what was holding a salesperson back, what was holding a sales manager back, what was holding a sales leader back, what was holding a sales organization back, um, all went into the uh, objective management group tools that we used to evaluate <coughs> sales teams assess sales candidates, so I think it was i think I leaned on relied on my diagnostic ability, which helped CEOs, presidents and owners uh, to pretty quickly recognize that um, while they had seen the results pretty clearly, they had no idea what was causing the results. And I did. And at that point, I had a track record of fixing and, and solving the problems that they had. So, you know, for whatever reasons, people did business with me the first few years. You know, I had some pretty sound science and track record and confidence uh, beyond that point.
0: So speaking of the, the track record and being able to diagnose, um, what? how did you put objective management group together? Because there's, you know, you would know the questions to ask to um to to give the diagnosis but how did you put that together in an assessment and evaluation form so that it would be and I'll let you touch on this a little bit further but that it would be not only accurate but predictive
1: struggling with this because there's there's an answer that makes sense to anybody that's listening mm-hmm which wouldn't be the truth. And there's what really happened, which would be the truth that nobody will believe.
0: Let's go with the one that no one will
1: believe. that pretty much channeled it. Oh. You know, it's it's the same way I learned to, to do uh, pretty basic computer software. I didn't take any courses, I didn't read any books. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then I was able to just sit with my hands on the keyboard and, uh, I think the language back then was basic I and mean, it was called basic <laughs> and it was in MS-DOS. So it was before anybody was doing visual programming and it was before there were functions that made all kinds of stuff happen. Like, you know, just had to literally program everything, but I just, I would sit down with my hands on the keyboard and close my eyes and I could write software programs. they just came out of me and once in a while i'd have to look something up in a book to figure out how to get it to do something that i needed it to do that didn't come to me Mm -hmm. but it was pretty much channeled uh, like a medium would do although i wouldn't consider (laughs) myself a medium and uh building the omg assessments i mean there was my knowledge and my expertise and my wisdom that I had developed at that point, but how did I come up with the right questions and the right answer choices that would give me accurate answers that would predict uh, what a salesperson was going to do? A lot of that just came out of the universe.
0: From the universe and and experience, um, did, you, did you have to, so when you're saying you channeled it, was this essentially you were doing the coding? Mm-hmm. And when you, so when you establish this, and and if I'm thinking correctly, it used to be called the Curlin Assessment, right? Or is that just what everyone...
1: Dave Curlin Salesforce Profile was the the first name that it had um, because we were trying to build it off of my reputation. And, you know, companies started calling it, as you heard, the Curlin Assessment. Um, But uh, 10 years ago, we... Drop my name off of it because it, it had to stand alone without me mm-hmm. and uh it is what it is
0: when did you that this is a this is going to go for anybody that is in an entrepreneurial um, stage or, or looking to do something like that but when did you know that you had something good because there's a ton of assessments out there
1: i can't even tell you how many four, four years later
0: four years later and what was the what was the change or what was the realization?
1: Uh, my wife, Deborah, mm-hmm. Deborah Penta, uh, she's president of Penta Communications, which is a full service marketing, public relations, graphic design firm, and she also did speaker bureau stuff, and she leased me at the ink magazine conference for growing companies as a speaker on sales Mm -hmm. and it was probably my first big huge speaking engagement that wasn't to a private company and i did a an hour and a half talk standing room only i mean the the room was packed and they, they had to put tvs outside the room And people were out in the hallways watching it on closed circuit TV. And I I think the, that talk was called how to upgrade your sales force. And the message resonated and I had lines of people that waited an hour to talk to me after I was done speaking, shoving their business cards in my face, asking me to call. And so it was at that moment that I knew we had something.
0: And was this said uh, just just for the for the audience to visualize? Is this a packed room of thirty people with t v s outside? Is this a packed room of five hundred people? How many people are you speaking to?
1: I don't think Inc thought that I was gonna be a keynote attraction. I was just gonna be one of the uh one of the tracks you know at at two o'clock in the afternoon you can attend one of five different talks. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was on the, uh, revenue side. Um, so the room was probably set up to hold a hundred and there were probably 150 in the room and there were probably 300 people out in the hallways.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big group. And it was, uh, was it the, it was the speech that you gave, I guess, let me ask you it this way did you do a presentation on the assessment and then they said, I want that like specifically they saw it and they said, we need to know more about that. Or were you talking about the issues you've seen and that resonated with the
1: crowd? I was talking about uh, the, the weaknesses, the hidden weaknesses that many salespeople had that prevented them from being more successful. And, uh, what we uncovered from our Salesforce evaluation, uh, that allowed companies to solve those problems through training and coaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all I, all I, I wasn't allowed to promote myself. So I talked about a little about what we had done, you know, the experiences we had and what we uncover and, uh, what we gone on to fix, but I couldn't close anybody in the room. I couldn't say, uh, you know, if you're interested, come up and give me your card or write your name and contact information. I couldn't do anything, but they came up. And that was they, They'd never heard anything like this before. It was cutting edge. It was it made sense. it It seemed like something that would get to the bottom of sales team performance. And apparently the timing was right. We had just come out of a recession at that point. So a lot of companies were still kind of sluggish with sales.
0: And what is the, so there's a ton, I said before, there's a ton of different assessments out there. What is the, what are the key differentiators between OMG versus some of the other top names that people uh, know out there? And, And to set a little bit more background there's a ton of companies that do assessments that say they'll tell you if someone has a selling personality or, or whatnot. So, so how does OMG differ?
1: Well, uh, for starters, uh, most of the assessments that are on the market are either personality assessments like Myers-Briggs or caliber or their behavioral styles assessments like disk like predictive index. And as such, the questions that are asked are asked in a social context. Now, whether they say they have a sales assessment, or they don't say it, the only thing that changes in their sales assessment are the words that they put on their report. Uh, They go from personality words and behavioral style words to sales words, the topics change. Well, the questions don't change. What they're measuring doesn't change. They just jump to some conclusion that if you've got this personality trait or you have this behavioral tendency, then that must make you great at prospecting. Mm-hmm. Or that must make you great at uh, closing. And it's it's bullshit. They, they can't make that connection or jump to that conclusion, uh, but they do it. OMG is sales specific. It was built from the ground up by sales experts for use in sales organizations to evaluate sales teams and assess sales candidates. And at its core, we're measuring 21 sales core competencies. And depending on the role that a person has in sales, Some of those sales competencies matter more than others. Uh, For sales managers, we're measuring 20 sales management competencies. And for sales leaders, we're we're measuring eight very specific sales leadership competencies. And together, as part of a sales team evaluation, we're able to identify all the things in a sales organization that might be responsible for deals getting stuck in a pipeline for sales closings being delayed or canceled, for business being lost to competitors, uh, for not enough new business, for pipelines being half empty. And we're able to get right to the crux of the matter and share with the top executive exactly what's going on in their organization, why it's going on, what can be done about it, how much better the organization can get uh, what's going to be required to get there? How long it will take, and the specific elements of tr- of a training, coaching, and development program that would be required to assure that they get there, and it resonates.
0: It 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 absolutely does resonate. And to to give an example, and I, I can't say this is a, I can't say this with a hundred percent confidence that this is a question that would be asked from a. Different assessment, but when we're talking about sales personalities, and, and I am definitely shooting from the hip here, but one of those questions could be similar to if you're in a if you're in an elevator with a group of people, would you say hello? And if someone says that they'd say hello, that would be identified as this could be a good person to be a business development representative. Yeah. They're social. Yeah, they're social. They're, a-
1: they're extroverted, they'd be great at prospecting. Right
0: right building
1: relationships
0: exactly and if you so if you were to think about so when we're taking the core the 21 core competencies and if you have a different number than this uh, go for it but if you were to say the top 6 that help to that help with a salesperson's success and the top or bottom 6 that get in the way what would those be
1: okay well the the top 5 or 6 that are key to a salesperson's success mm-hmm. would clearly be their ability to follow sales process, their ability to reach decision makers and build relationships, their ability to take a consultative approach and sell value and their ability to thoroughly qualify. Boom. <laughs> if they're excellent at that stuff, they're the top sales people at the company period. Now to counteract that stuff, your second question, what, what are the biggest things that get in salespeople's way? It's the stuff found in sales DNA. Sales DNA is the collection of strengths that support a salesperson's ability to do that tactical and strategic stuff I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. But when the strengths aren't in place to support it and their weaknesses instead, those weaknesses sabotage their ability to execute on the strategy and the tactics. So uh, the most uh, debilitating of the weaknesses is the need to be liked, need for approval. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you need people to like you, you'll have trouble asking more than a couple easy questions. If you have to ask some tough questions, if you have to ask a shit On of questions, if you have to have the difficult conversation that nobody has had with that prospect or customer, you're shit out of luck Mm -hmm. because you'll be afraid that if you go down that path, they're not going to like you very much and you're going to lose the business. That is the killer. It's the death blow, especially when you've got some others along with it, like the ability to stay in the moment right here, right now. Not just 30 seconds ago and not thinking ahead 30 seconds or a minute, like, what are you going to ask next? But just the ability to be right here, right now, so that you can use your active listening skills and really hear what was just said so that you can ask the next appropriate question. Uh, Third on the list would be discomfort talking about money. Uh, When you're not comfortable asking money questions, I'm not talking about do you have a budget. Is a worst question ever invented in the history of sales or how much is in your budget? Another loser of a question because they never have a budget if you ask and they never have enough if you ask. And now you're digging out of a hole. Um, You really need to have a conversation about finance. And a lot of salespeople uh, grew up believing it's not polite to talk about money. And so they get to this fork in the road where they know they're supposed to ask, but it hurts way too much and they're way too uncomfortable. So they skip it or they avoid it or they ignore it. Um, And the fourth one would be difficulty overcoming rejection. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty Mm self-explanatory. I'm not talking about fear of rejection. I'm talking about what happens after you get rejected and how long it takes to get back at it. Like falling off the horse. Right. How long before you right. get back on the horse? Uh, the fifth one, and it's not fifth in its ranking, but it's fifth in terms of what came to mind mm-hmm. would be what I named non-supportive I-cycle. Uh, if sales, sales cycle is how long it takes to get from I discovered an opportunity to I closed an opportunity. I-cycle is how you go about the process of making a major purchase for you and it considers things like how much is a lot of money at what point does something become a major purchase how much research do you do do you comparison shop do you price shop do you think it over do you hate sales do you hate getting sold to and that that has more of a correlation to how salespeople perform when there are stalls, put-offs, and objections than anything. And then finally, it's uh, self-limiting beliefs. The collection of things we believe that either support or sabotage our sales outcomes and our sales activities. And the things we do for ourselves or against ourselves uh, that influence how successful we are
0: so that's that's a really good download that was
1: almost like i knew what i was talking
0: about no 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 that's that's an amazing download and and for the listener that isn't familiar with sales dna or for the listener that is you may have heard some of these terms like handling rejection or need to be liked or comfort discussing money uh, but to paint a picture to put some color as to why these are so important. And we'll use, we could use a few of them. We'll say need to be liked and supportive beliefs for this example. You could have someone that will come in and they will say that they will hunt and prospect all day and they're capable of it. And and let's say they do make those calls. So they're a tremendous hunter. They they dial, they smile. When it comes to DNA, so they make these calls, but they have a need to be liked and they have non-supportive beliefs. Well, they may get a hold of the gatekeeper. They're not going to push back at all or say, well, can I talk to someone else there? They're going to get frozen because they don't want to ruffle any feathers. They don't want to experience any discomfort. Using that same comparison with non-supportive beliefs, supportive beliefs being a strength, non-supportive getting in the way, you've got someone that will make 100 calls a day. But when they get on the phone, they think before they even speak. I suck, my product sucks, my company sucks, and the person on the other end of the line doesn't wanna talk to me, this isn't gonna go well. So as much as they wanna call, the DNA is gonna screw everything up and these these are the blind spots that almost, well, these are the blind spots that every company, this is my my biased opinion, but these are the blind spots that every company not using the OMG assessment misses and they get these interviews with a stellar candidate that smiles and tells them they're going to do everything and promises them the world. And you fast forward, you're lucky if you're realizing this within 30 to 60 days, most companies don't separate for, I would say, you can tell me nine months to 12 months, but they're thinking what happened to the person in the interview? Where did we go wrong? And so that is the value to companies is these blind spots. And it's it is, I think it's cheaper than not cheaper. I think it's more affordable than an insurance policy for your car, which we all have that. We have homeowners insurance, we have health insurance. So I don't know why more companies don't look into hiring insurance. You know but- the
1: difference is um, we can't put our car on the road if we don't buy the car insurance. If we could, there would be so many people skipping car insurance. That's true. And we can't a mortgage on our house without homeowners insurance if we could there'd be so many people that didn't have homeowners insurance look at all the people that don't have health insurance where it's not a law that they must have health insurance so it's not a law that people need to use an assessment Mm -hmm. or the omg assessment specifically and one of the problems with I love sales managers and sales leaders because those are the people we end up working with. Mm -hmm. Those are the people we're in the trenches with. But truth be told, their egos are so oversized. They believe mistakenly that their gut instinct is more reliable than science. Mm -hmm. That's why. Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) And they're afraid. This is part of the ego thing as well. But I, I believe that they're afraid to ask for help. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a no brainer. We, I, I think it's Andy Miller uses this um, analogy or phrase, but um, and I'm going to butcher it right now. But what is, when it, butcher away. what, what is the, and it's funny, I'm saying butcher as, as I'm going to lead into this, but what is the difference between the,
1: tying in the knives? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To the knife, so we're going full circle with this. What is the difference between the chicken and the pig? when it comes to breakfast.
1: Right. The, the chicken is invested, but the pig is committed. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And if sales managers looked at this more and this is nothing against hiring managers and nothing against sales managers. There's, there are plenty, there are a ton of great people in this world. Uh, But when it comes to commitment, we get away from, or or HR will get away from taking an assessment because they don't think it's necessary. Well, The results of the hire directly affect the sales manager, the director, the VP of sales, and the overall revenue for the company. So if you're going to commit to paying someone to come in and represent your brand, represent your service, be the face of your company on the East Coast, Northeast, wherever it is, do a little bit more research. We date people for years before getting married and we're willing to do two or three interviews and just hire someone, give them keys to the company card, the expense account. And it's just, in my opinion, it's ludicrous. And I I probably didn't think that way. I know I didn't think that way until I saw and have experienced and heard The nightmares of the bad hire and the sales ghost, and how long that damage can go. And and I've been I've been fortunate fortunate for the experience with this, but I know companies that aren't allowed to even go into territories anymore because of how bad the previous rep fucked it up. Like don't even don't even walk by my window. And so those, when you really weigh out the expenses versus the pre hire assessment, it's uh, it's comical that anyone would try making
1: a hire without it. Yeah. And the data is so compelling. You know, the the two things I usually point to are that when OMG says not recommended, but those clients with the egos are smarter than we are Mm -hmm. and they interviewed them and they loved them. Yeah. Uh, so they hire them anyhow, 75% of those people fail in six months. Mm -hmm. And when the data says recommended, and the company completes their due diligence and decides to hire. 92% of those people end up in the top half of the sales team within a year. That's compelling data, but even more compelling, if you don't want to have to do it again in a, in six months to a year, mm-hmm. use the assessment. Right,
0: right, and on the, so the, the 75%, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm gonna take that a little bit further. of the people that weren't recommended, that were hired regardless, they have failed and they have failed in the, in the, um, they've failed in the way that they're terminated within six months, but taking it a step further, that doesn't mean that just because they weren't terminated that they've hit quota. So that number could be significantly higher. higher. They just haven't gotten rid of the employee yet. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. I, I, the, the
1: actual statistics, I think, um, on attrition, it's like 49% when you don't use an assessment. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it's 28% when you use an assessment, any assessment, and it's 8% when you use the OMG assessment and quota attainment it's 49% when you don't use an assessment it's 60 i-60s percent when you use an assessment and it's 88% when you use the omg assessment it's really compelling
0: data yeah it's it's if anyone is into data or um if anyone is looking for roi or looking at numbers it it is a no-brainer Um, And so, so taking, we've talked about DNA, we've talked about your, um, your venture into creating OMG and with OMG and with being a consultant and with being a guru every day, we still are, whether it's relationships, family, um, navigating, uh, family's a good one, but um, navigating any sort of any sort of situation where you are trying to get yourself in there and we can use consulting as well because as a consultant you still have to sell that you are the right fit for that company what are the what are some of the cores and principles that you would say have contributed to your success
1: that's a tough one um willing to tell them the truth i that that's got to be at the top, um, I'm willing to have the difficult conversation with them about what's really wrong and what they really need to do. And when they're not the one doing what they need to do, uh, call them out on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about the, the top executive that we may be working with at a company. Um, so being brutally honest is number one. Number two w- would be giving them the best version of me every time I'm working with them, not taking a minute off, you know, being there, be, staying in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, role play. And there's no substitute for great role play. And at Curlin & Associates, we pride ourselves on our ability, including you, to role play effectively and demonstrate what a good conversation sounds like. And and this, this should probably be up Higher on the list, but uh the sales team evaluation and the sales candidate assessment, so that we know what we're working with mm-hmm. so we we know what we need to do to take the shortest path to the biggest increase in revenue i'd I'd stop with those four
0: when you're talking about role play, do you give examples like do you jump into role play when you're selling
1: When I'm selling never never
0: okay. That that's a, that's my question. That's a that's a good question for me. But but giving an example of what a coaching uh, what a coaching call sh- could or should sound like. Uh, but yeah, I don't do that. Good. No, no, that that's good for me. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So, moving from you and moving from OMG, you have written a few books. So, of the books you've written, which is your favorite?
1: Baseline Selling.
0: That's what I thought. And if you could, um, can you help the listener understand, just give a brief overview of how baseline selling, how that analogy translate in, translates into a process and what's made it successful?
1: Sure. Uh, I live and breathe and think and dream in analogies. If, if you were to go to my blog, Understanding the Sales Force, and and read any five of the 2000 articles that are there everything starts with some kind of analogy and uh so baseline selling was no different it was my belief that that the best analogy for selling comes from baseball and there are so many different places you can go but the one that the book is based on is uh that the the typical effective sales process has four stages, and the baseball diamond has four bases. So each stage belongs on a base path. And when we lay it out visually, we can plop our our sales pipeline in those four stages, and we can put our sales process in those four stages. We can name the four stages of the sales process using baseline selling, but the vocabulary is similar too. You know, most sales teams have bullpens, presentation is called a pitch. Um, when when we close a big deal, we talk about hitting a home run. You know, so some some of those analogies were built in. And and all I did was make use of some of those existing uh, commingling of terms. High uh, priority using the baseball diamond to visualize the sales process and simplify it into four stages. And we went from there.
0: It is. Uh, so you touched on it. And that's funny. Cause you're right. Yeah. The pitch and hitting a home run. Or if you, uh, if you blow a call or, or blew a deal, I'd say I just struck out. Uh, so yes, it, yep. it translates exactly. seamlessly. And for, for the listener, I would highly, 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 highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. It, I have, um, I would say I've read it. I've read it too many times, but I would say I've read it probably 15 times um, throughout my years. And I always go back to it. It transformed my career in it. it, I don't want to say it transformed my career overnight because I didn't finish it overnight, but it transformed my career after completing it for the first time. And each time that you read through it, you will pick up on a different detail that you missed the time before. So that, that book for
1: me personally, that was the biggest game changer. Uh, for me it combined my love of two things it combined my love of baseball with my love of selling and and i consider myself a student of the game of baseball and a student of the profession of selling so putting the two of them together was a natural for me but i also don't want your listeners to to think that it's all about baseball it's a book that's all about selling Mm -hmm. and while we use that baseball analogy of the baseball diamond throughout the book that's that's really the only thing we're taking from baseball. Um, the rest of it is the most complete book on selling ever written. It's got everything. It's sales process, it's sales methodology, it's instruction, it's examples, it's dialogue, It it's everything that you need to go out and make yourself better in selling without investing in Derek or me uh, to help you apply it and make it come
0: to life. Yeah. And it goes, it goes further than that. If I'm remembering correctly, which I really hope I am, as I've read it so many times,
1: you can do it better than me. It
0: also serves as um, it it serves as a, you can use it for a goal setting or a blueprint. You know how many calls you have to make to have a conversation, how many conversations you have to make to set a qualified meeting and how many qualified meetings you have to uh, attend to put out a proposal and how many proposals you have to do. So the blueprint, if you...
1: That part is just proof that, see, I can do math.
0: Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, but it really did it when I was struggling in a time in my career when I didn't have the I don't want to blame anyone here, but I didn't have the leadership that I necessarily needed, which it, you only make as much as you're worth in sales. So I had to take it upon myself to take it further. But just even putting together the blueprint, that set my daily metrics. And having daily metrics, that was what I needed to know what I needed to do to get where I needed to be. So that was huge for me. And I don't think I've ever said this, but thank you for writing that book,
1: Dave. And, uh, Thanks for being that one person who read it. <laughs>
0: that read it all the way through so many times. <laughs> um, and, and so speaking of writing, I can't, so we're talking about uh, Baseline Selling, which you were a best author for, but you have also been voted, um, you have vote, been voted for writing Understanding the Sales Force as a top sales and marketing blog. And I know it's been for multiple years you've won that award, correct? Like 11 years in a row. Okay, so, so 11 years. How has that what do you think was different about that blog from this is the internet from every
1: other blog out there? Well, for one, it was never intended to go like this the um my thinking was i was i had written the sales book that was two thousand four and five, and next was a sales management book. And I had just discovered this thing called blogs. And I'm like, huh, you know, that's, that's typically like six or eight paragraphs. And I was struggling to find time to even start the sales management book. But I'm like, six or eight paragraphs, I can write that in 20 minutes. So I can't find two hours at a time to focus on writing a book. So why don't I try this blogging thing and, you know, write a blog post? you know, three or four times a week, and maybe the collection of blog posts can become the sales management Bible that I want to write. Well, I never found the time to spend two hours a day writing a book, Um, but I've been able to continue uh, writing articles, and I'm never going to write another book, but I'll continue writing for the blog. Um, the, The thing that's different is, you know, the book, was an analogy it was baseball and selling my article every article has an an analogy of its own and uh, I have a lot It, it makes the writing and the reading fun when I can take this this thing out of the blue that has nothing to do with selling and making it all about selling like today, the article I wrote—we had talked about this already—but the article I wrote today was about congressional hearings oh, yes. and how they are exactly the same as making the presentation to a big company.
0: And I—I'm I, not going to spoil it. I—I I need the listener. If you want to hear the rest of that story, go check out the blog. But I, I already know the background of it. And yes, I—I I completely agree with your uh, with your thoughts on writing and and the details that you put into it. Um, being Being that you have, at least in my words, you are this sales guru. What do you think, based on your experience, is the biggest struggle that salespeople face today?
1: It's not one, it's two.
0: The more the merrier.
1: Um, Well, since the advent of... EDRs and inbound leads, salespeople don't know how to prospect. They either haven't done it for 10 years, and they have forgotten how and don't think it works anymore. Or they never did it. So most salespeople don't know how to pick up the phone and make a cold call. Um, which is why I really get one anymore. least it you know, five or six cold calls a day. Now I don't get five or six a month. So you know that that's the most noise free approach into a company is is the phone because you know the the e- the unsolicited emails come through multiple per hour, and the same on LinkedIn on the in mail and in text messages now um but don't have much competition for making cold calls so that's one, and the second one is salespeople do such a poor job at discovery and are so anxious to jump the presentation or demo that presentation and demo become the number one milestone in their sales process and they don't get prospects past Oh, this would be nice to have mm-hmm. but they're not getting them to we must have this uh, so deals are getting stuck in the pipeline and they're not going all the way through
0: and would you call that a, a process problem
1: uh, that's part process and part
0: methodology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that that's better put. Um, on the
1: process, on the process side, they're out of order, mm-hmm. and on the methodology side, they don't know how to really do a discovery call. Right. That's that's um, got its foundation in listening and asking questions and create uncovering a compelling reason to buy that can be uh, used to create urgency. Right,
0: and to take that a little bit further, so an analogy that we frequently use is the doctor analogy. And so, for the listener, mm-hmm. if you were whether you're going to buy a new TV when you're whether you're going to buy anything that is um, you know requires some sort of thought, <clears throat> if we were to compare this to going to the doctor's office, and you went in with I, I'm not going to use TV because that's not something that would um, really be a change. You, you could, but. If you were going into the doctor's office and you said, hey, my knee is really bugging me right now. And the doctor said, oh shoot, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, let's get you cut open and start looking into surgery. No matter what, I know that's gonna fix this. No matter what, if I cut you open, I'll figure out what's going on and we'll be able to go from there. You have from a process perspective and just anyone, if you go to a doctor and that's the case, I would run for the door, but there's so much more information that needs to be gathered to even see if there's a reason to move forward. And maybe that your knee's hurting because you have been running for the past three weeks straight, and the doctor says, well, why don't you just uh, take a few days off and use some ice and Advil? Problem solved with ease, the doctor didn't have to do anything. Or maybe, and this is where the assessment comes in, we do take a look and there's a tear in your meniscus. And now we have all of the information, which would be the the X-ray or the CT scan, similar to the evaluation, to give us the data and the information that we need so that we can take a precise approach to help you in the way that you need help for the reasons you need help and within the timeline.
1: So that's, uh, and it it could also be a sprain. Exactly. Right. It could also be arthritis. Right. Right. It could also be your, you know, where we live in central Massachusetts, the summer, which is coming to an end, uh, Put us more like the rainforest that you were in in costa rica mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe your knee acts up when it's humid and there's low pressure which we've had low pressure over us the entire summer not today uh, you probably can't tell but it's breezy it looks great in the 60s it's beautiful yeah, day
0: it does it does look beautiful um before i forget so i i we talked about what are salespeople uh, struggling with today and based on my research, and this could be wrong, but it seems as though the number one searched question from salespeople on Google is how do you hand reject, handle rejection in sales? Which that question surprised me, actually. That's not what I thought it was going to be. What is your take on this? Um,
1: it, it's interesting. You know, we know half of all salespeople suck. We know about half of all salespeople don't hit their quota every year. Mm -hmm. We know about half of all salespeople uh, don't ask for the business. And your search suggests that about half of all salespeople have a problem with rejection. Mm -hmm. they, They seem a little intertwined to me.
0: What what would be, what would you tell someone? Uh, there's
1: one more I can add to that. We know statistically that 55%, uh, I'm sorry, 45% of all salespeople lack commitment mm-hmm. to achieve greater sales success. Mm-hmm. So not now that we're intertwined properly.
0: So what would you, I, you can't commit, well, you, you can speak to this. What would you do for someone that lacks commitment? And what would you do with someone who struggles with rejection if there's anything that can be done?
1: Well, let's start with the commitment. Because if the commitment can't be fixed, who cares that they have a problem with rejection? So if they're a performer lacking commitment, chances are something changed. We have to figure out what changed Mm -hmm. and see if we can fix that. If they are not, and in the meantime, just let them keep doing what they're doing. If they're a non performer chronic non performer, they never hit quota and they lack commitment. That's the salesperson you replace okay period yeah,
0: there's nothing that can be done right yeah. and for the salesperson that wants to either improve their ability to handle rejection or the salesperson that's just fearful of that any any yeah. tips
1: Yep. Um OMG has a product called the Sales DNA Modifier. And it's it's, it's like freaking training in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um it's a subscription, it's online. Uh it uses self-hypnosis. You watch a spinning image on the screen and a hypnotherapist says the right words at the right pace in the right tone uh, to get you in a delta state and change what's going on in your head it's it's pretty benign it's pretty easy Um, you play it twice a day for 21 days problem solved it also helps with overcoming your need for approval with your ability to stay in the moment uh, with goal setting with discomfort talking about money there's 12 different things that it does it's the best 119 dollars anybody could ever spend
0: i completely agree and before we started i was listening to it and and it was saying i asked the best questions no one asked better questions than me and that's that's why we're on such a roll right now so i'm going to attribute sales dna modifier uh, there and um i i we lately touched on dave being an introvert so i am very grateful that i've gotten this much time out of you and as i am winding this down and it's not going to be You're that We're going
1: to have to wind it down pretty quick because since i'm outside i've got the screen brightness up all the way mm-hmm. And since we're outside, I'm running on battery, okay and it's doing video, so it's burning those quickly. two things. Brightness video—it's burning through battery faster than I could have ever imagined. I can go a whole day on this laptop in the house without running video, but I don't have much life left on the laptop.
0: Okay, then I'm going I'm to rapid fire these and give me a signal if it's about to die. So I, I have to ask this question—it's come up for me on this podcast a lot. Um, you have been a top-rated speaker at numer- numerous conferences. Public speaking is a skill that most people want, but few master. How did you own- hone your skills?
1: Another really good question. It's really two parts of it, right? There's honing your skills and being able to get up and do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I was okay getting up and doing it from all my days as a musician playing in a band mm-hmm. you know so all the stage fright happened back then um but you know th- there's a an analogy between being in the band and speaking in the band um your your band had a pretty much learn about 500 songs so that you could play a four-hour wedding and take requests mm-hmm. you know so you had to have the basic American songbook down, and then you had to be learning the popular songs as they came out. So if anybody requested them, you could play them. So that allowed you to go through four hours and be able to pretty much read the audience, figure out what they're interested, what they'll dance to, and keep them up there dancing. And speaking is very much like that. You you've gotta you've gotta have five hundred songs or or Um, topics that you can go to like that based on what the audience is asking questions about, what they're engaging on. Because uh, a presentation to an audience, in my mind, is a two-way conversation, not a one-way conversation. So, you know, most speakers do Q&A at the beginning. I do Q&A at the beginning. Find out what they're interested in, what's on their mind, what they want answers to, and based on what they bring up, I'll weave that into a presentation. And if I've got those 500 topics in my head that that I can just pivot to, then it's going to be good. Uh, that and you've got to smile and be charismatic and dynamic and tell some good stories.
0: Well, in in that, so when you said engaging the audience, that would have led into my yeah. next question. So. Um, the strategies that you would use strategies or methods to engage or captivate the audience would be Q and a before energy, keeping it dynamic and anything else.
1: Yeah. I always start with a powerful movie clip, uh, so that I telling, yeah, um, movie clip, uh, that gets their attention. It doesn't run more than five minutes so I can, uh, ask them, uh, if they had any thoughts about what they just saw and then segue into and while i'm getting your thoughts what's on your mind you know i'm going to talk about generating revenue sales sales management sales leadership sales teams sales enablement so for those as umbrellas if there were one thing i could say to you today that would cause you to leave thinking this was a grand slam for you what would it be and i'll and i'll take there topics for a half hour address some of them on the spot weave the rest of them into a presentation and then give them exactly what they came for that's brilliant And what could what could be a better talk than if you give people exactly what they came for i mean when you go see a concert i'm sorry uh, i'm i'm visual so i would go to see a concert yeah. somebody more auditory would go to hear a concert yes uh, when you when you go to experience a musical event you're What's on your mind? You want to hear them play their their biggest hits. Mm-hmm. And they start playing new songs that you never heard of. And it's like, uh, when are they going to play the good stuff? Right? Yes. Um, so the same thing if you're speaking. Um, they, they know what they want you to talk about. You just have to get it out of them and have some fun with it.
0: That's brilliant advice. I'm going to change the way that I structure my public speaking because that <laughs> that's a great takeaway for me. And I'm sure for the other listeners, I'm going to rapid fire this. For the novice salesperson entering the industry, what would be your top three pieces of advice?
1: Get as much training and coaching from your sales manager as you can. And don't let them just set you up for failure and throw you out there. Constantly ask for help. Constantly ask for direction. Constantly ask what a good sales cycle looks like, sounds like, feels like. Ask what the sales process is. um, And ask for training and coaching. Number two, learn your freaking product inside and out. Learn the competitor's products inside and out. And you better be able to differentiate between the two in a way that's meaningful to your prospective customer. Three, Uh, learn to sell consultatively, learn to listen and ask questions, whatever it takes to get good at that. Whether that's books, podcasts, training, coaching, make that a top priority. Because if you don't, you'll be like everybody else and uh, you'll suck.
0: And, And for the seasoned salesperson that's feeling stuck in a rut, what sort of strategies um, would you encourage them to use to rejuvenate their selling
1: techniques? Basically the same, uh, with the exception of uh, the coaching and the direction from the sales manager, a stuck salesperson already knows the sales manager can't help. So you gotta go outside, gotta get yourself a sales coach, sales trainer, go through sales training, read a lot of books, watch, watch a lot of podcasts, read a lot of sales blogs, consume information and put it to use.
0: And for growth, growth, yeah, growth is good for anybody. This happens often, I face this, but what would you say one of the other, one of the other top questions that's asked uh, on Google was, uh, how do you maintain consistent motivation, especially during slow periods or sales slumps?
1: So how do you get out of a rut? Ask yourself why the fuck am I doing this? Yeah. And, and until you have the answer to that, um, until it's until it's clear that it's to put my kids through college, to buy a vacation home, to buy a new car, to take a golf vacation, to go on a spa weekend, uh, to remodel the house, to um, in, invest in a whatever, and, until you know what it is, to have free time, Until you know what it was and what it is today, you won't be able to motivate yourself. But once you figure it out and you you agree with yourself that it's still important to you and you walk through walls for it, you'll get motivated, you'll get off your butt, you'll light the fire and you'll do what it takes.
0: Very good answer. And these are the last three. We've made it this far. Sure they are. Yeah. yeah you know how I am. One more question. One more thing. Now, you were
1: winding it down and yeah. wrapping it up. Yeah.
0: These are the last three. So given all of the roles that you've played. so are you
1: trying to set a record and make this two hour podcast?
0: Oh, no, they're all over. I'm trying to keep this under two hours for you. Okay. <laughs> so, so given all of the roles that you've played, um and, and I'm gonna also add in being a husband, being a father, so author, entrepreneur, sales guru, what's the most fulfilling
1: and why? Dad. Dad. And why? And uh to the those who are dads, I don't have to explain it. Yeah. Okay. And to those who aren't dads, can't explain it. You'll when you hold that baby for the first time and you make a promise to that baby that you will protect him and provide for him and entertain him and make him happy and help him learn to be happy and do whatever it takes, you'll know in that first minute.
0: I I love that answer. My dad said something similar to me. Um, Are there any upcoming projects? We know there's no books coming out, but any upcoming projects or ventures uh, that you're excited about currently excited about that you can share? No. Perfect. And that brings me to- <laughs>
1: there, are, there are exciting projects and ventures coming up, but not that I can share.
0: I like that. I, I, I like the mystery and I apologize you can hear. I'm, I'm downtown Seattle, so they're not coming from me. It's just uh, where I live. Um, <laughs> and, and my last question, if there's one key takeaway uh, for the listeners, especially salespeople, to remember from this interview,
1: what would it be?
0: Or maybe something I didn't ask.
1: You can always get better. There is no cap to how good you could get in sales. And if you're not trying to better yourself every day, if you're not trying to beat your own best record, if you're not trying to beat the other salespeople at your company, if you're not trying to beat the other salespeople in your industry, in your territory, what the fuck is wrong with you?
0: <laughs> I, I agree. I, yeah, I, I agree to the fullest. And, and that's why that is why it's not for everybody. Not everyone has that competitive nature. Um, so that, I promise you, that was going to be the last question. Thank you for coming out. Can you talk What's up?
1: How can you that?
0: I can't. No, no, no. That's, that's the one to go out on. And if someone wants to get a hold of you, the best way is going to be through LinkedIn. Through you or through me, which (laughs) through me is going to be send me an email, and that's info at constructingsuccess.fm. And I would highly encourage you, if if anything from here, reach out to Dave or I if you need help. Grab the book Baseline Selling if you want to learn more. And at the very minimum, you should subscribe Subscribe to to Understanding the Salesforce, and you will get more than you could have asked for um, on on a pretty, I would say, every few day cadence correct
1: Yeah, uh, here's a message on my screen i haven't gotten before it says energy saver turned on perfect
0: all right well dave <laughs> thank you thank you very much i've learned so much from you you're a mentor to me i'm grateful to be a part of your team and i am very grateful that you spent a record breaking amount of time with me and hopefully this is the record for longest podcast you've done
1: I love working with you, Derek. You're doing a great job on the podcast. You do a great job with your clients at Curlin. And uh, I hope we can continue doing this together for a long time.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thanks, you too. See ya.